All right. I'm assuming I can be seen and heard, so uh, I'll begin this. Uh, hopefully, this is my last time to do this at home, sitting. I prefer to stand in that context. So, uh, and also to be able to interact with you as I see you. We've returned to our series on the events. Oh, just a second. I've got to turn on the recorder. I get in trouble when I... Don't get that going. All right. We've returned to our series on the events of the end times. I, in some sense, addressed it last week with the looking back and looking forward. Remember that our goal is to examine these events in an attempt to avoid replacement theology, that is to keep Israel, both the people and the land, central to these prophecies. And we're also trying to avoid getting the gospel wrong by thinking that the gospel is going to change the world when it actually calls Israel to be prepared for the kingdom to come and for those of us from the nations to join them in anticipation of the messianic kingdom that will be established in full at the return of Yeshua. Now, we have looked at the events that are the most clear, including the last days, the great tribulation, the signs in heaven and on earth, as well as the generally clear items like the abomination of desolation and the mark of the beast, among other themes. In the last few messages before we observe the holy days, and really in a sense pause this series, we began to look at the more unclear aspects of the end times. That includes the message of the seven thunders that John was forbidden to write down, and the two witnesses, which have several possible interpretations that could be both literal or figuratively, that are found in Christian theology. We need to remember what Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13-12, that we are seen through a mirror dimly. He actually uses the word enigma, which is about something that is obscured or a riddle that's not clear. These things are not all clear. For now we know in part, but then when the completion takes place, we will know as we are known. This is related to what Rabbi Dahlman has reminded us, that the biblical revelation is difficult because we cannot always be certain what is literal, what is pictorial, or what is symbolic in nature. And in some cases, where both literal and the extension principle uh, is involved. So we have to be humble about these things and certainly not break fellowship with our fellow Jews and Christians who see these things somewhat differently. So today we're going to introduce one of these unclear and possibly literal and symbolic concepts. John tells us that this one is a mystery, and he uses the word mysterion, which means a mystery or a hidden or a secret thing. So this is not going to be overly clear or obvious, and it's often missed by those who are natural, that is, they don't know the Lord, or those who are new in the Lord and are scripturally unlearned. But God is revealing it, in part, to his servants. So we're going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. The scripture says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls 
the bowls of wrath. Came and spoke to me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, and with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of fornication, and who, and who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the great, mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I greatly wondered. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. Now, this passage is contextual to the seven angels that poured out the bowls of wrath, and when the seventh one is poured out, we hear that Babylon has fallen. So we looked at that previously, and we have to look more at it, but this one, one of those angels that poured out the bowls of judgment, talk about the judgment of the great prostitute or harlot. Different translations use different words, but it's the idea of sexual immorality. And she sits on many waters. She is sexually immoral with the kings of the earth, and this is associated with her drunkenness. John sees her in the wilderness sitting on a scarlet beast, filled with blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns, and her hand holds a cup of abominations, unclean things, and fornications. Now, we've seen this beast before, but I'm not going to talk about the beast today. I will address it in subsequent messages. Today and next week, I want to focus on the woman. The woman is dressed with the finest of clothing and jewelry, and on her name, on her forehead, is a name. The name, a mystery, is Babylon the Great, mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. John also sees that her drunkenness is from the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. So we can see clearly that she represents all that seeks to assimilate, that is, draw God's people away to false religion and idolatry. That is her fornication. It's not all of it. We'll talk about more than that. And she also represents the persecution of God's witnesses who were imprisoned, tortured, and killed for the truth of God all through the history of Israel and through the history of the church. In the following chapters, 17 and 18, we will see the woman and the beast in their full ascendance, and then we will see her fall. And we'll look at that later, next time or the week afterwards. Today we're going to look at the notion of Babylon as a city. And this is found in Revelation chapter 17, verse 18, the last verse. It says, The woman who you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So, today we look at Babylon, but we really look at Babel. This word is Babel, 
in the Hebrew, and it is mostly translated Babylon by translators. There are a couple of places where it is translated Babel. And we're going to look at those first because this is the beginning of that issue. So I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. We'll look at a few verses there. Genesis chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 12. The text says this, Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. So he is known with a reputation. It says, From that land, uh, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Achad, and Kalnik, in the land of Shinar. From the land he went forth into Assyria, that's significant as well, and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth, Ir, and Kalah, and resting between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Now, notice this idea of Nimrod building this place called Babel, this great city, and this is going to be significant in the next chapter, chapter 11. So turn with me to chapter 11. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. We can see this moving from the, the genealogy. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made bricks for stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach to heaven. And let us make a reputation, a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one. And they have all the same language, and this is what they begin to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible to them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad from the whole face of the earth. Now, here we have the story of Babel. Noah and his sons were told by God to be fruitful and to populate the earth, to spread out and do that. And that would involve them migrating. But the people did exactly what Cain did. They built a city. Cain built a city and named it for his son. They built a city to keep themselves from being scattered. And they wanted the city of man to have its own power and access to heaven. And they did this explicitly to control their own destiny, not to be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So God judges the city and the tower by confounding their languages. And as a result, God now forms the Gentiles. He forms 
forms the nations who are scattered to all parts of the earth as separate languages, separate cultures, and separate tongues, and in our terms, separate races. This city is called Babel. It's called Babylon. And the text also speaks about Assyria. Now, why is this important? Well, what's important is that as we continue the story, we see that God now will call Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of this area, and he will bring him back into the promised land, give him promises, begin covenant, and begin a people who will be a light to those nations and from whom salvation will come. If you don't catch the significance of Israel in the plan of God, not up to the cross, but through the whole process, you will miss this. What's going to happen is prophesied by Moses. So I'd like you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses has given Israel as they have come out of Egypt, uh, that people of God that started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who now are a mighty nation, uh, and they come out, and they come out of Egypt by a strong hand of the Lord, and God tells them, this is how I want you to live, and Moses basically tells them that if they live according to his commandments, they'll be blessed, and if they don't, then they will be kicked out of the land, and they will be scattered among the nations that were scattered at Babel. And then we have these words in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 6. So it will be when all these things have come upon you, the blessings and the curse that I have set before you, and you call them to mind into the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all I have commanded you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore your captivity and will have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, that is California, there, from there, the Lord your God will gather you and there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land and your, that your fathers possessed and you will possess it and he will prosper you and multiply you there more than your fathers. And more than that, God, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. You can already see from Elijah and from other things that will take place that God's promise of the circumcision of the heart in the new covenant is already in the, the Torah as God has given it. So, God, Moses tells Israel they're not going to be able to obey him. He's going to scatter them among the nations, but he will bring them back. Now, later, the Assyrians will come and take the northern kingdom away, and Judah will be taken by Babel, by Babylon. So now I want you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 20. 2 Kings chapter 20. 
important to know that you cannot understand the New Testament and what's going on if you don't have a working knowledge of the Law and the Prophets and the Writings. They are the foundation of all that's read. And you can't interpret them in light of the Gospel. You have to interpret the Gospel in the context of the Torah and the Prophets. In Second uh, Kings 20, verse 12, it says this, At that time, Berogah Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah listened to them, and he showed them all the treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah didn't show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and where have they come to you? And Hezekiah says, They've come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah said, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I haven't shown them. And Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word which you have spoken is good, for he thought, if it is so, then there will be peace and truth in my days. Wow. Hezekiah's visit by emissaries of the king of Babylon with a letter and gifts because they're being nice to him because he's sick and he welcomes them and shows them everything. He left nothing out. And when Isaiah comes and says, what did they want? He says, I showed him everything. And Isaiah says, then all of that and your sons are going to end up in Babylon. It's really a judgment upon Israel for not following God's ways. But Hezekiah doesn't get that. He thinks it's a blessing of peace and truth by compromising. Babel means to mix or to be confused. And it really represents assimilation and ultimately persecution. The idea here is that what happens whenever we compromise with the world, or when we ever think that the world is going to bring about the peace of God, we're going to be ensnared by that. Now, we don't have time to read 2 Kings chapter 25 through 36, where Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem, destroying the temple and taking the treasures of the house of the Lord to Babylon. But we do need to read Isaiah chapter 13. So I'd like you to go to Isaiah chapter 13 and read it with me. You can't just read the book of Revelation without the background of the context of the imagery that is being used. So, that's why this is going to take a couple of weeks. Isaiah chapter 13 says this. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. 
Lift up a standard on a bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that, you, that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalting ones, to execute my anger. This is the judgment of God. A sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many peoples. A sound of uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. Uh, from They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons. The Lord is in instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, every man's heart will melt, they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them, they will rise like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it and stars will fall from heavens and from their constellations will not flash forth their light the sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light and I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place and the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger and it will be like the hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them and they will turn to their own people and each one flee back to their own land anyone who is found will be thrust through and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword their little ones will be dashed to pieces before their eyes the houses will be plundered and the wives ravished Behold, I am going to stir up the needs against them who will not value silver nor take pleasure in gold. And Babylon, verse 19, the beauty of kingdoms and the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and it will never be inhabited or lived from generation to generation. And the Arab will not pitch his tent there, and the shepherds will not make their flocks lie down. The desert creatures will lie down, their houses will be full of owls, ostriches will live there, and shaggy goats. Hyenas will howl in the fortified towers, and jackals in their luxurious palaces. Her fateful time will, will soon come, and her days will not be prolonged. Now it's important to catch this. In the passage we have Isaiah addressing Babylon, and in his statement he not only goes to Babylon of his day, but he also talks about Babylon in relationship to the day of the Lord and the judgment of the wicked. Specifically in verses 6 to 10 we have foundational texts to the ones that we have in the Gospels and the Revelation where men's hearts stop for fear and the sun and the moon are affected. God will punish the world and put an end to the arrogance of man. So this looks both at the time of Isaiah when he brings the Medes in there and also to the events of end times. Now, theologians from the time of Augustine to the present have spoken about the city of man and the city of God. The city of man 
of man's arrogance, of man's pride, of man's, we don't need God, we can do it ourselves, or we will form God the way we want to form him. That city is Babylon in all of its forms. Sodom, Babel, Rome, Berlin, Moscow, Beijing, Washington, D.C. The governments and false religions that seek the glory of man and say we can bring about peace. But the city of God is Jerusalem, which will be restored in the kingdom to come. But even that earthly Jerusalem is a copy and a shadow, a foretelling of the new Jerusalem, which will come adorned as a bride from heaven as part of the new creation. Now, what are we getting at? I have to talk more about the city as it's depicted as a woman in fornication. I'll do that next week. But I want you to look at a particular verse in chapter 18 of Revelation. We'll go into it in more detail later, uh, but we have, to, we have to lay this foundation first. In Revelation 18, verse 4. John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquity. Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back double according to her deeds, and in the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. This is talking about this woman, this called to assimilate, to draw God's people out, and to engage in fornication with the kings and the governments of the world. God says, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins. Babylon is both a city and a woman in the book of Revelation. And we've traced the idea of Babylon as a city and as the city of men. As such, she represents the world system that is against God and seeks power and the unity of mankind on their own terms, because this is the way of man. We're told to come out of her and not to participate in her sins. We must first look at Babylon as a woman, this drunken harlot, and the mother of all such. Why is that imagery used? And we'll look at that next week. But we're told in this last text that we're to come out of her and not participate in her sins. That text also has several foundations for passages in the Newer Testament that we need to look at. And we will examine also the beast that she rides on in subsequent uh, messages. But what is our takeaway today? Our takeaway is that the threat to God's people, and this is true of Jews and of Christians, has always been first assimilation which God considers adultery. If we go towards the government or we go towards the, the false uh, religions and idols, uh, we then are not trusting God who is our king and the Lord who is our high priest. We are not to look to government or to alternatives to God's word as solutions to bring about the promises of God. God himself will keep his promises 
And our job is to trust him and to obey him in all that he commands. Now the problem of that is that the other threat that comes against us, not assimilation, but when we hold fast and stay separate and stay holy and obey his commandments, the other threat, threat comes when we reject assimilation, and that threat is persecution. This faith that you and I walk is a pathway of faith that is a path through temptation to assimilate and the sufferings of persecution. And we must be prepared to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We must prepare ourselves and our children. Not because this is immediately going to come upon us, but as we pass the baton from generation to generation, we need to be prepared. Israel is very aware of the threat of assimilation and the threat of persecution, though she often from time to time forgets that. But the church, particularly the American church, really doesn't know what that is. But our time may come, and so we have to be prepared. And so we're going to look at this woman and the uh, adultery with the kings, and we're going to look at the beast that she sits on. But next week I want to specifically look at her and why she is uh, labeled as a woman and the mother of harlots in that sense. And we'll do that together. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and we thank you for it. We ask God that you would help us to understand it, not to be overly fearful, but to be strong and encouraged in the faith that you, Lord, will keep your word. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. And that we can trust you and obey you. And whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.